Brandon. What's up, guys? Yo. How's it going? Uh, Thank you for going, joining us. Going good. I hope you like my hat. You know, I, I especially uh, like the little cowlick. Yeah, I, I really yeah, like the, know, the 12 year old, like, let me have a little tuft of hair sticking out from under the hat. Yeah, you know, I actually call it something different. I call it the, I haven't cut my hair since the beginning of the bear market. And so, you know, this is what you get. I love it. I love it. So, so wait, real quickly, because, because it needs to be said, it's been brought to my attention that Brandon Green had to run away from Nashville, had to go into hiding once he heard that I was going to enter the premises and, and demand a rematch for, for our long awaited FIFA second leg of a, our first leg tournament. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably worth everyone understanding that Q is horrible at FIFA. He talked a whole bunch of game ahead of the Coin 2022 conference. I, you know, thought that there was like some legitimacy to him saying that he was good at FIFA. So we did a tournament. I wiped the floor with him. I think we played two or three matches. He maybe got a goal out of all all of them and yeah, played, it was it was bad. So, one who, who who were you again? What was your team? Was I I forget. Man Man City? No, we were countries because I was Iceland and I still scored a goal scored a goal on you. And I ended I up lost. losing three one only because I went all out. Anyways, all I'm saying is I died. Brandon's I a little died bitch. While you guys are talking about this. <laughs> he won't play Jesus me again. Christ. He retired immediately from FIFA because he knew he would never beat me again after that. So Sounds like some bullshit. Brandon, before you jumped in, I was hyping you up. I described you as the chief of staff at Bitcoin Magazine, someone who can see into the future and the past and who has been in Bitcoin for a very long time. You've been on the show before. We've been talking about Bitcoin Independence Day, and I'm curious what your experience as someone who not only has been in the space for a while, but was super, super uh, kind of close to a lot of the action, given your position in Bitcoin Magazine, your personal relationships with a ton of people in the space. What was your experience of the block size war? Yeah. So, I mean, it was fascinating, right? I remember at the time there was Aaron Van Wordham was writing kind of the, the de facto description of what was going on. You know, he was teaching me at the time about concepts such as covert ASIC boost and, you know, other kind of Bitmain, I don't know if conspiracy is the right story because I think it ended up being true, but just some of the the conversations around the the you know block size war and how Jihan and and kind of the Bitmain side were folding into Bitcoin and whether they were even being good actors in the space. And and it was fascinating at the time. I mean, I was really drinking from a fire hose. I was just learning about Bitcoin, and here I was kind of on the the back end of a lot of the the you know. The writing about what was going on so you know it was it was a fun summer it was you know a crazy summer we've definitely never had anything like it since i remember i was actually in denmark when you know the whole bip 9 kind of resolution happened and you know we ended up basically locking in segwit and it was it was just super exciting i mean it was just, you know there i was thinking about this kind of right before i joined the the call but you know the real win in my opinion, is that we didn't define consensus. Like we still haven't said like, this is how consensus is achieved in Bitcoin besides obviously, you know, longest chain, most proof of work behind it. But, you know, there's all these people who are saying we need a clear governance model. We need, you know, this is how you create like new changes in Bitcoin. This is new BIPs. And I think that's such a short sighted view because it's in some ways, you know, if Bitcoin is like a digital consciousness of, of, you know, humankind, 
we don't even know how consensus works in our own brains. So how are we supposed to define how consensus should work for, you know, the entire Bitcoin network? It just didn't make any sense to me. So, you know, I think the real win is that, you know, obviously the users won, but also that, you know, we didn't have to define and say, yeah, well, the miners, you know, set consensus or this group sets consensus. No, it's, it's resultant from the economic activity of the nodes. And I think that that's just, you know, its own sort of resultant emergent cool fact. What were some of the most significant like moments for you during that process? Like how did your own, you know, you mentioned sort of your understanding of, of consensus. How did your own understanding of what was going on shift based on the conversations that were happening, happening publicly and also the ones that were happening internally? Like did, did the, if you're comfortable talking about it, like how did the, the, the understanding of the situation from Bitcoin Magazine's perspective shift during that period? Because there was so much going on. I mean, like grown men were like crying. It really felt like, again, I was, I was very peripheral at this point. I didn't really understand the, the true power of Bitcoin at that time. I was just sort of a spectator. But I remember like on Twitter, like, I mean, people were losing their minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so... I'm like, I'm just thinking back to kind of when it happened, there's, you know, I was learning at the time, I was basically an intern, starting out in the summer of 2017. And so I went from intern to, you know, full time employee while kind of being, you know, an intern like character with all of it. So hearing the conversations, not having enough context on everything at the time. So I just I feel like I have a very odd memory of all of this. But so for instance, I remember Early in that summer, everyone was talking about how, you know, the blocks were starting to get filled and like the, the transaction fees were really starting to get high. And, you know, what are we going to do about this? And, you know, I remember early on, I was like, man, it sounds like, you know, a bigger block would solve this. Right. And I had to learn, like, you know, we're not talking about solving this problem for tomorrow. We're talking about creating a system that can work indefinitely in kind of the ways that we stipulated. And so, you know, Tyler, our CTO kind of sat me down and taught me about SegWit and how it worked and the, the, you know, the way that the mechanism was locking it in at the time. Uh, and, and just the kind of, you know, I think we were sitting at a 75 ish percent signaling for SegWit and we had been there for months at that point. I mean, it, it felt like it was never going to happen. Right. And so it was that summer then that at consensus, there was this sort of whatever you want to call it. I think we call it the New York agreement now, but you know, it was this agreement where the, the miners and some of the big exchange companies and the CEOs all came together and had this handshake deal that said, you know what, we will, we will implement SegWit, you know, Maine specifically will signal for it. And at the same time, there will be a 2x increase in the block size. So it was, you know, known kind of colloquially as SegWit 2x. Well, that absolutely set off a firestorm. And what was really cool is that this, this character emerged through some, you know, posts, you know, some writings on Bitcoin Magazine, like especially, again, Aaron Van Wordham did a great job documenting all this a guy named Shaolin Fry, who basically became, I think, one of the, the most unsung heroes of Bitcoin. I mean, you know, Shaolin Fry, I don't know if that, you know, pseudonym is even still used anywhere, but basically kind of wrote the playbook for the new, uh, for SegWit, uh, where you could have a user activated soft fork 
And then you obviously had like Samson creating the hats. You had sort of the movement start building up. And, and yeah, you know, within a matter of months of this New York agreement being signed, you had the UASF like officially, you know, kick off, it felt like. And, and it, you know, it didn't take that long for SegWit to get implemented after that. I remember then later that, I guess, early fall, sometime around, uh, was it mid-August, late August or mid-September when SegWit2x was supposed to fork off? And uh, old Jeff Garzik had miscoded the, the block. That's why he's known as off by one Garzik because the, the Segwit2x never launched because he misprogrammed mis which block it was supposed to launch in. So never got off the ground. You ended up having, you know, the classic Bitcoin cash fork from, from Bitcoin, which created its own planned obsolescence because they legitimized the idea that you hard fork from Bitcoin. And so then the next time there was a disagreement, there was a hard fork from Bitcoin Cash. And then there's been more hard forks ever since. And so it's like, you know, that's that was already dead on arrival. And yeah, I mean, you know, Bitcoin has just continued to to grow since then. I mean, it's been it's been amazing. So moving away from the kind of block size war, what else the question I like asking all of our guests, and thank you for joining last minute, Brandon. What are some of the other things that you see happening in the space right now that are really exciting to you, whether technological, from a policy perspective? You know, where, what are you excited about at this point in this bear market? Yeah, so I mean, I think that there's a few different narratives that are starting to form that are interesting, right? And so one is about, one is about like how, how does Bitcoin maximalism actually defined? And I think that Pete Rizzo is doing a good job really trying to, to document and, and kind of codify what Bitcoin maximalism does and doesn't mean and, and how broad of a topic it is. And so, you know, we've seen the, the classic. I mean, at this point, it's just classic. Like, you know, the bear market comes, we all start fighting with each other and we all start blaming each other for why Bitcoin's price is down. And so you kind of got this coming to a head with Carter and, uh, you know, him turning in his maximalism card, right? Whatever. We don't have to go rehash the whole thing. But I think that the question that resulted from it is like, what are the actual fundamental points that everyone is disagreeing on or that the Bitcoin community still isn't sure about? And I think one of those that is continuing to get kind of discussed is what does Bitcoin look like in terms of a tech stack in hyper-Bitcoinization? Is there one consensus rail that it trades on, which is the Bitcoin chain. Are there multiple rails, which is the multi-chain? You know, this is kind of what Carter was talking about. It's also what, you know, Eric Wall and Udi and some of the other guys talk about. Like, does Bitcoin trade on all of these different rails or does it, you know, just trade on, on you know, the Bitcoin rails? And, you know, what are the trade-offs of that? Is that good for Bitcoin in long term? Do we need a network effect that's splintered like that? Or do we need to kind of coalesce around a specific chain? And so, you know, that's something that I don't think we've really clearly seen like the answer to yet, right? Like, you know, everyone's kind of using their first principles and arriving at conclusions, but it's not like, it's not like that's been, you know, there's no falsifiable set where you can say, all right, this failed, therefore we can move on from this conversation. Like, it's just, it's still outstanding. And I think more people need to prod themselves about like, you know, what does Bitcoin look like in the future? Is it something that I just hold on to and, you know, leave me alone? I'm holding my Bitcoins. 
is it a, a multi-chain asset that takes many forms and is pristine collateral, all types of the different, you know, forms, right? Do we need centralized entities to be kind of the platforms through which you buy and sell Bitcoin or buy and sell things with Bitcoin where you collateralize uh, and lend your Bitcoin? You know, like how does that look? I think is, is something that we just need to keep kind of prodding ourselves on and thinking about. And I don't have an answer for it, right? I think that it's just the right question to be asking. So that's one. I mean, I could, we, there are other things, there are other questions that I'm thinking about, right? Go for uh, it. Another one would be, you know, as you're starting to look at politicians, you know, more and more involved in the space, one thing that's going to be fascinating is like who who are our real quote unquote friends, right? It's easy to to come out and support a Bitcoin when it's growing and it's exploding. And, you know, you, the politician can see the dollar signs in kind of signaling for it publicly. It's another thing when we're in a bear market and it's not the sexy thing and it's not, you know, maybe not even popular to, to be talking about it at the moment. You know, are they still going to come out and defend it? I, I don't know. Uh, my bet says, my gut says probably not. You know, I think that maybe you have this, maybe there's a couple other ones who like actually care about Bitcoin, but I would say for the most part, they're just there to get more votes and figure out how to, you know, co-opt our movement. So I think that's going to be another interesting thread. And then, you know, the biggest thing that I'm paying attention to specifically for Bitcoin is the resolution of the basically the macroeconomic crisis we've thrown ourselves into. And this is something that I was talking about a little while ago on the Twitter space. But, you know, you have a scenario right now where the EU is, is teetering on, you know, dissolving. I mean, there's no other way to, to kind of play it. You've got... Uh, really two factions. You have the pigs countries, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain. Ireland sometimes is thrown in there. They're all relatively importers, right? Like they, they import more than they export. They are high in debt a lot of times. These are the countries that basically got bailed out by Super Mario Draghi after the great financial crisis in 08. And, and you know, if he hadn't have done that, it looked like, you know, the EU could have toppled then, right? And what ended up happening is that the European Central Bank said, all right, we'll just buy the debt from all of these Southern European countries and basically become a backstop. Well, they've continued to do that. You know, the ECB is standing up kind of this, this Southern countries of, of the EU. And that's fine because it was fine because the EU was a net exporter. And, and so because of that, you know, you still had like demand for the currency coming from abroad. Well, with the whole Russia gas crisis where, you know, Germany and other countries got cut off from, from, you know, Russian gas, their costs for energy crept up so much that it actually erased their, you know, their net exports. So now Germany even, and all these other countries are now importers, net importers as well, which has caused a demand for the euro to cave. You saw euro hit parity with dollar earlier. And so you're actually looking at a scenario where like the euro is itself weakening. Well, the problem with the ECB is that it has only really one mandate, which is to maintain the stability of the euro. It's not to protect the entire EU and prevent it from dissolving. And so there's this starting to form this like perverse incentives where if they're going to protect the euro, that means raising rates. But if they raise rates and they stop purchasing, 
you know, debt of Southern countries, which would protect the value of the euro, right? By doing that, you raise rates, you stop printing money. Then you run into a scenario where no one's buying pigs, nations debt. And at that point, they, they default on their debt. And so if pigs, nations default on their debt, again, this is Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, you're running into a problem where like they need to re-denominate in their own currency so that they can actually you know, print their way, inflate their way out of it. That's the kind of their only, only choice. And so that's like starting to happen. I mean, the ECB actually raised rates 25 basis points last week. And, you know, at the same time you saw Super Mario step down as the, the prime minister of Italy. So, I mean, you're seeing some of the machinations of this happen right now. This is very important to pay attention to. The alternative would be if the Northern countries, you've got like, you know, kind of Scandinavia plus Germany, which have been the economic powerhouse. And I'll explain why kind of this, all this matters with Bitcoin, right? But you have the economic powerhouse that have been these net exporters that are seeing the inflation in the system. And they're saying, wow, okay, we don't want to keep printing all this money. We need to tighten up so that like, we don't all see this rampant inflation to, to prop up the, the pigs nations, right? And so if, if the inflation isn't curbed, if the spending by the government isn't stopped, then the northern countries will all elect their own populist leaders similar to how the uk brexited and and you will see like greece or sorry germany and like some of these northern countries exit the eu on the other end right so the reason why this is interesting to me for bitcoin is because there's not a lot of solutions for europe and if that happens then you're going to see huge amounts of currencies basically being minted and printed overnight a lot of people are not going to like go back to that system of you know Redenominating their debts on a new currency that's also backed by nothing, right? These these currencies need to be derived from something, and so Bitcoin is a huge answer for that. If that doesn't happen, the only alternative is for someone like the U.S. to step in and basically do yield curve control of the EU. That is not our mandate, I can tell you that, and it's going to cause us to start printing. I mean, even more money than we imagined printing for COVID if we're having to prop up the entire EU with our Federal Reserve. And Wait, so- What would that look like? You, what, do you, what do you mean when you say yield curve control of the EU? Basically, the, the idea is that, so, okay, let me back up. What is yield curve control? Yield curve control is basically your attempt at kind of controlling the, the, in, the interest rates on a bond. And, and by doing that, you're actually putting that bond's payout below what the inflation rate is. So anyone who's purchasing bonds is like, all right, well, then I don't want, or anyone who's holding bonds, I don't want to hold this bond. I'm losing money in real terms, right? And so then they sell it. Well, if you sell bonds, then you need a buyer. And so if, you, if no one's buying, then the, the rates start raising and that causes the debt to be higher. And so what the EU does usually is they go in and backstop it and they say, all right, we will just buy all bonds at this price level and basically control the yield curve, control the yield on it, right? And so they can't do that anymore because they've printed too much money and there's inflation and all this kind of stuff, right? And so the only person who could really be in a position to do anything about it is, is Powell and, and the Fed. And so if the U.S. did that, then you would see just massive printing of the dollar and you would get into the same basic macroeconomic set that got us from 2009 to today, which you've seen what Bitcoin has done. So that's kind of the 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 other case of Bitcoin. Like either way you kind of slice this, this is incredibly bullish for the price of Bitcoin. It's just it kind of comes at the expense of stability in somewhere like Europe. That's. 
that's what I think is fascinating. And I mean, it's, it takes a lot to kind of understand what exactly we're talking about in this in this sense. But the there's not a lot of outlets. There's not a lot of like, here's how they're going to get out of this one and somehow, you know, keep the, the Ponzi going. Right. Like there's going to be a real reckoning coming up and, and you know, Bitcoin's going to stand to benefit in a really, really big way. I think there's something else, though, that you said that. Like this idea that, oh, all all the countries in the world aren't going to try are are not going to have the appetite to reassign their debt to this new currency. But that I don't necessarily know if I buy that assumption. We've seen them, especially over the course of the last 50 years, specifically want to use these sort of currencies that let them manipulate and play around with sort of the debt levels. Do you not think it's just as feasible for in the same vein of, hey, the euro is going to go be done with and each of these countries are going to have their own currency and they're going to sort of revamp. feasible for in the same vein of, hay, the euro is going to go be done with and each of these countries are going to have their own currency and they're going to sort of revamp for... That was trippy. You heard that too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. I just thought I was having a stroke for a second. I was like, all right, so this is how I go. What I'm trying to say in a very long way, why do you think that they won't have the appetite to just recreate the same system that we have, except this time instead of Germany, France, enter whatever other European countries, et cetera, that I can't for whatever reason think of at 11 o'clock in the morning on a Monday, why wouldn't they want to? Okay, so you're saying we can have the same system where we can manipulate and control the money, but instead of giving it over to the hands of this one centralized leader that now has to account for all of these other countries in Europe, we can just do that for ourselves and prioritize ourselves, which we haven't been able to do for like two decades, two and a half decades now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so you're making the case for, you're making the populist case for why this would happen in the first place. Yeah. Everyone wants to, you know, from a country standpoint, redenominate their debt in their own currency. The thing is Q you as a resident, say of Greece are going to wake up one morning and Greece is going to say, all right, turn in all of your euros for the, the Greek, you know, whatever the currency is there that they're going to create. God help us. And we'll just call it the Greek dollar. And the exchange rate's going to be one-to-one. And so turn in your euros and we'll give you one Greek dollar in return. And we're going to redenominate all, all our debts here. And we're going to print the absolute living heck out of it in order to be able to pay off all of our debts. Are you going to just say, yeah, okay, like take my money, you know, uh, here we go. Like, let's, let's see what happens with this new shaky currency that has like minimum economic backing. Or are you as a, as a citizen going to be like, all right, I need to be storing my value in something that's a little bit more stable than this brand new currency that they're printing bukus of in order to just get themselves out of debt. That's, the the scenario we're talking about sure the countries are going to love it but it doesn't mean that this currency is actually going to be valuable and it doesn't mean these people who up until now had been relatively financially stable are going to just you know waltz right into this new system happily i think though like i agree with you and i want to see that world where people are just going to opt out but unfortunately the masses will just do what they're told and the masses will go to the easiest route and what's probably far more likely rather than even printing 
like the the literal act of printing i don't think we will ever see again i genuinely think what we'll see is like oh hey you have a an account that's linked to the bank of greece we're going to stay on that country for this example guess what we've now redenominated all your funds it said you had 10,000 euros in there. Nope. You have 10,000 Greek dollars. Now the change has been done for you. Don't even worry about it. We took care of, we, we did this for you, not because you asked, but we, we think this is for your best interest. That is to go down this rabbit hole with you. That is what I think is far more likely, which is far more troubling because the average person is just going to kind of be like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll move on with my life. You're making in essence, the user experience of this transition, so simple. Okay. I can still go to my same bank. Oh, we're not going to use cash. All it's all going to be digital transactions. Focus on your cards. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong that that's probably how they're going to do it. They're going to just tell them, Hey, like, you know, these dollars are, are Greek dollars. Now these euros are Greek dollars now, period. Sure. But that doesn't mean that the person isn't going to turn around and be like, I got to get out of these Greek dollars, like, especially if they just start inflating like crazy, right? I mean, people are rational actors in their own economic sense. And so, you know, if they see that their value is being inflated like crazy overnight, they're going to get out of that. Like, they're going to find something to redenominate in. And, you know, in this scenario, we just talked about the fact that bonds are, are being yield cur curve controlled. And so they're not going to just redenominate into bonds because they're losing money holding a bond. So the only thing that makes sense is for them to find some sort of financial tool that is a unaffected by inflation of a new currency, like the printing of a new currency. And then B is, is like, you know, not a debt instrument because the debt is really risky to hold and doesn't even, you know, doesn't even yield above the rate of inflation. And there's not many, there's not many things you can buy that solve those issues. Uh, the very obvious one, the one that's been bought for thousands of years is gold, right? But I think we all agree, like Bitcoin's a better version of gold, just in that one sense. So that's why, like, you know, maybe that, you know, not everyone's going to do it. Sure, some people are just going to go on with kind of their new currency that's being printed and they're not going to think twice about it. And they're going to wake up one day and wonder why they're so much poorer than they were under the EU, right? But the, you know, the ones who kind of are, you know, pitching a fit and saying like, no, this is not fair. This is not, I mean, this kind of disrespects my fundamental human rights to be able to just store my own wealth, right? Those are the people who are going to become Bitcoiners and they're going to become Bitcoiners overnight. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. So Europe is slowly collapsing and failing. We're bearing witness to the slow and steady demise of the dollar. We talked at the very beginning of today about Japan actually making surprisingly a right decision by their central bank specifically and nixing a CBDC. 
I want to get your your sense, what your sentiment is around the introduction of CBDCs. Do you think that is going to be a part of this sort of new iteration of fiat, if you will? Well, definitely. I mean, every central bank wants the ability to control their, you know, citizens even further than they could before, right? Like this is this is not a very controversial statement to say that every country eventually is going to create a CBDC of some sort. Sure, the Bank of Japan said we're not going to do it right now. They cited the fact that like their people actually, you know, dissented against it, which is, you know, good for them. Like that's awesome. But, you know, you're you're kind of you're delaying the inevitable, in my opinion. You've got too much interest in the, you know, central bankers of the world being able to influence consumer spending. Say, you know, we think you're bad for our society we're building, we're freezing your funds. Or your economic acts are not helping our GDP. We need you to stop. Yeah, I, I muted my Slack. Sorry, guys. I know it's been pinging. We need you guys to start spending your money. So every you know couple of minutes or every couple of days, we're going to take away a tenth of your money that you're holding in there, right? And so it's just, uh, there's so much control that it offers. It gives them complete insight and like ability to see who's spending money on what and, and what consumer behavior is and all this kind of stuff. They're just going to use it. Like, it's just a matter of when. The It's, it's terrifying for, you know, people who love human rights and freedom, but you know, that's, that's going to be the battle of the future is just like Bitcoin versus your CBDC. And, you know, I, I, I'd like to be optimistic and think that there are still some institutions out there who care more about like the human condition than their own power. But I think that those institutions are few and far between nowadays. Oh, I think Pete left me. My bad. I want to, I want to focus on just sort of this conversation around the macro world. Is there any other part of the world that you're paying attention to that you're just not, you're disappointed that there's not been enough coverage or conversations around what's going on there? So, I mean, I think that Japan's in a similar, we don't have to go all the way in Japan. They're in a similar situation as the EU. They've got real issues of, they've been quantitative easing for 30, 40 years. They don't have a lot of things to throw at this, this problem that they're having and the, you know, Japanese yen is, is collapsing into the dollar as well. So they're, they're in a spot where we'd probably soon, like Powell would have to basically do the same thing for Japan that I was saying he's going to have to do for Europe, which is, again, more money printing, which will cause, you know, Bitcoin's price to increase again. So, but we don't have to get into all that. You know, another thing that I think is an interesting trend and something that like everyone should be concerned about is the, you know, less economically stable countries that are seeing real inflation hit and especially inflation in food prices. I mean, you know, this is kind of like a, a depressing conversation, so we don't really have to have it. But, you know, the money printing that we've done, the instability we've introduced into the system in order to, you know, smooth over a two year economic shock to the system that was the COVID, you know, lockdowns, it is going to disproportionately affect the people at the bottom of the Cantillon curve. And that means, you know, people living in countries who are disconnected from the financial system are going to be the absolute first people to get hit. And you saw it obviously in Sri Lanka, you're seeing it in a few other countries that are, that are starting to get some real 
you know, movements and, and protests forming. You're seeing it in like food inflation, even in Mexico. I saw earlier today, like Mexico is starting to see huge amounts of inflation. And, you know, all of these areas that are just less politically, socially stable than somewhere like Japan, the US or the EU, you'll see something akin to the Arab Spring 2.0. I mean, you know, it, it goes without saying, like in Libya, during the Arab Spring, when they were, you know, toppling Gaddafi, they were chanting bread, brotherhood and God. But it was always bread first, because at the core of what they were upset about, in the core of why every human in existence revolts against their government is because they can't feed their family. And, and so it's just the instability that we're causing is just unprecedented. I have no clue how it's going to play out, but it's definitely that I'm something that I'm keeping, you know, an eye on. These are trying times indeed, my friend. I love that you bring up bread. I've been a, a big proponent that wheat and just the lack of access to bread and food will be the, the downfall of our modern civilization. Yes, Chris, I am a wheat maximalist. We've, we've discussed this. You can shame me for it all you want, but I made a lot of money off of this trade and that is not the right reason to be. Damn it, he's back. Fuck. Okay, I got to behave myself. <laughs> I've been here the whole time, motherfucker. Brandon, I'm curious. You know, as the 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 person who's who is basically owning the the programming Queen Amsterdam. Like, I'm wondering if any of the themes that you're talking about are going to show up in the programming for Bitcoin Amsterdam, and if so, how that how you're thinking about that. Yeah. So, you know, some of this will, we're definitely going to have like a very good European macro focused conversation. A lot of the themes that we're looking at right now are more, I mean, there's some that are definitely kind of going to bleed over, but something like the proof of work ban that the EU tried to do, the, the travel rule, the, you know, privacy regulations where like any transaction over a thousand or 800 bucks or whatever it was like, you know, has to be fully KYC like, those are all things that I think we're really going to be leaning into because, I mean, you know, talk about draconian measures, banning proof of work in the EU. Like what, how, how did that almost get to the point of getting passed? That's just, it's insane. fucking wild. It's insane. Uh, and, you know, shout out to uh, Patrick Hansen, who basically was like, I don't know, one of the sole champions of our space that I saw anyway, who, who was fighting back about this proof of work ban and, you know, succeeded and it was awesome. And we, you know, we had some MPs who like got it, who understood why, you know, a stable load on the energy grid might be a good thing, right? Like uh, maybe there's use in that as we're trying to transition into clean energy that you can just kind of deploy energy consumption that you can monetize and, and use to cheapen, you know, new renewable resource development, who knows, right? Like just might make sense, but yeah, I mean, that's going to be a huge conversation there and it's going to be a huge conversation moving forward as we just talk about like what society is even for. I mean, you know, if you wanted to get real meta, I think that the biggest challenge facing the first world is what do we even want to accomplish as a species? I don't think we have any goals anymore. Like, what are we working towards? Do you guys know? Like, what's your what's your take? What do you think humanity is working towards as of today? Oof, that is a great question. And I think everybody will give, I think it is sad how different the answers we would get from large sections of the population. I mean, that's to be expected because obviously people are not, thank God, we're not a homogenous entity. But answer the question, P. 
Yeah, sure. But you have to answer first, and then I'll give my answer. All right. Also, go fuck yourself. I, I would, lo- I would. My personal answer is that we should be working towards the continued success and improvement and expansion of humans. We live in a in a cold, cold universe, and it is a miracle, and I don't mean that, I, I personally am not a religious person. I think it's even more amazing, from my perspective, that what we are developed through random chance. It's my own perspective. Not everyone shares that. There are probably other sentient species out in the universe, but as far as I know, we have not contacted them or had contact from them. I think it is our responsibility to keep this torch, which is humanity, burning in this cold, cold universe. I think that is our, our, that is a major thing that I spend a lot of time thinking about and also progressing. So I want to see us get off of this planet. I want to see us become more robust so that if a meteor hits us or a giant solar flare fries half the life on this planet, that like we continue to exist. And I, that's kind of the the, the, the root of my, my beliefs around what we should be gunning for as humans. What do you think you? Are you an, an Elon Musk simp? Fuck no. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. From not. the sound, doesn't mean it, that. From the sound, no, no. It, I mean, kind of a, an apology. Are you kidding me? His whole shtick. No, no, no. He has a very different shtick. He says that publicly, but his whole shtick is. Oh, because understandably, if you understand the incentives, it's just how can I make as much money uh, as possible? Yeah, yeah, certainly. But also, like, how can I make my company, you know, as big as possible? It's my view. That's a very simplistic answer. I mean, to you, me, I want to hear your answer. Wait, wait, hold on. I want to hear your answer to this question, and then I want to hear Brandon's because Brandon, let's be honest, is going to be the most articulate of three of us. So you're going to be like Teletubbies. So I think the the two big. I'll, I'll caveat this and say there, there are two classes to answer this. There's the answer that I think is the general consensus, and there are a few different things. You know, space travel, space exploration, the longevity of human life. However, is the one that I think is the the thing most a majority of. I'm going to say a word that maybe some Bitcoiners will literally revolt and throw something at there at me on screen, but like scientists are genuinely working on. And I mean that through the lens of like expanding human lifespan as well as, you know, combating certain diseases like cancer. So I do think that is something that is being thought and worked on extensively. Personally, however, I could give a flying fuck about any of that. I've accepted on year 50, like we're good. I've made it 30 years longer than I should have made it on this God's green earth. So I'll be good at 50. And I genuinely want to leave this world knowing that it does not matter where you're born. You have access to clean drinking water. It is crazy to me that it is frankly a bullshit lottery where you are born and that determines whether or not you have access to water. I don't give a shit about your access to the internet. I don't give a shit about access to anything else. You literally as a human being cannot survive without water. And it blows my mind that about one sixth of this world just does not have that access. So wait, <laughs> wait, wait, everything that you do is, is geared towards getting water access. That, that's a mean, that's gotta be a means to an end rather than the end all be all right. Like 
we, we're not done once everybody has access to water. Right? No, of course. It's just, I genuinely think that is the biggest problem in the world. I think the fact that there are people born in this world who do not have access to clean water is the largest shortcoming of humanity at this present moment, more than anything else. P, you, you and I and Brandon and Chris and everyone watching this did not do anything to be born in the environments we were born into that gave us access to these things. I, I don't disagree. I don't think that, 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 that being true is not a refutation of what you, what you said though. But Brandon, I want to hear your take. What is the most important thing that humans can be working towards? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the answer to the question is like very, I don't think there's a wrong answer. I think that ultimately, like my goal in us, you know, even asking the question is to point out that like, nothing we're really talking about is being talked about at a national or international level. We're, we're so busy, you know, discussing the social issues of the day that like, we're not even worried about like, who's actually driving us forward. I think that I think that if you wanted to, you know, look at this from a Bitcoin lens, you would first off say that like the number one correlation to human thriving is energy consumption, right? And I think that if you look at just looking at, you know, just looking at what Bitcoin's incentives are and how life formed uh, from a, you know, entropic standpoint, you would say that like humans were able to coalesce into like a complex organism because we as organisms are more effective at creating entropy in the world than if we were all just floating particles. And so because of that, I think that, you know, Bitcoin is another way for us to create more entropy in the world. And so, you know, from my perspective, I think that the human kind of condition is built for two things. Number one is to, you know, basically consume more energy. And that means to grow beyond earth and, and continue to create more life. And then I think in order to do that, you have to, you have to create an incentive to burn more energy and you have to create a system by which there's cooperation. And I think that that's Bitcoin. And so, you know, in my opinion, like, I think Bitcoin is one of the key things that like will help drive humanity forward. And, and, you know, that's why obviously I'm bullish on it and, and, you know, working in the space for so long, but you know, it's also why on a day like Independence Day, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about these kind of questions because it's just like, you know, what can Bitcoin force us to do and, and help us achieve that we wouldn't be able to achieve without it? Well said. You are right. He did give the best answer. Obviously. I don't think so. I kind of got distracted by the comments. So, uh, oh, oh Nate, Nate, call out some comments. What are you seeing that you like? Who, me? Yeah. I just saw the elites know that, that global warming will lead to a global renaissance. That's why they're trying to reverse it. Ooh, interesting taste. Take. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the 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 short of it is just like, uh, we don't have the answer to why we're here. We don't have the answer to what society is supposed to do. We don't have the answers to any of this. But if we stop asking the questions, then we've stopped progressing as a society. And I'm afraid that we've stopped asking the questions, that we've become so short-sighted on who should have what resources and what's fair that we've stopped like pushing forward what humans can do and what we, you know, are ultimately supposed to be. And like, dude, I'm, I'm of the opinion, you know, uh, the camp of the rage against the dying of the light, you know, like if I'm on the Titanic, I am, you know, scrambling for a lifeboat and I'm swimming until, you know, my arms give out. Like, I think that the struggle of survival is like the most beautiful part of human condition. 
And so, you know, I don't want us as a society to take our foot off the gas. And I think that's why uh, Bitcoin's so awesome. It's just like it's something that forces us to continue to work towards producing energy and like, you know, being a sustainable society from an energy production standpoint. It's just it's so important. It's so important. Where do you think? Where do you think the conversation around Bitcoin and ESG needs to go versus where it may unfortunately go? I think ESG is dead. I don't think it's even going to be a term that we use in like a year or two. I think that it was like an attempt in a moment of, you know, peak. I mean, we were just peak bull run that we were like, what if we just start making everyone invest in things that are environmental, social or governance, right? And it's just like, okay, what does that even mean? We'd never had a definition of what is or isn't ESG when we got into late stage ESG that I would call where we are right now. You saw all sorts of just hilarious companies enter the ESG moniker, including things like, you know, gas companies and, you know, I think like Coca-Cola is an ESG company. I don't know. There's like, it was, it was just ridiculous how it's being applied right now. And then we're going to go into, you know, a, a recession where like, we're not going to have the luxury to kind of invest in, you know, things that may not make investors money. And, and so, you know, I, I think ESG is pretty much dead. Uh, I'm, I'm not following it that much anymore. Really? Wait, you think it's dead as in like, we don't need to worry about it anymore or it's dead as a narrative or. I think it's dead as a narrative. I think like the, the bubble has popped around it. I think you have enough outspoken people who folks would think are like, would fall under the camp of ESG that are calling it, you know, stupid. And it's just, you know, it's not going to catch on. Like, whether the government's going to be able to mandate, you know, BlackRock only put money in ESG companies, maybe that continues for a little bit, but it's not going to be popular. No one's going to be like, yeah, ESG, like, you know, the narrative's dead. Okay, like, who are you thinking of specifically? Like, what are the, what are the news stories that, that lead you to conclude that? Oh, I mean, the obvious one being Elon and, and Tesla. Like, Tesla has been specifically excluded from ESG because they don't have union labor and... Elon has publicly come out and said, like, we're one of the biggest solar companies in the world. We're one of the biggest electric vehicle companies in the world. Like, who is doing more for the environment than Tesla, regardless of whatever your counter arguments and solar and all that is. And then, like, you know, he got excluded from it. And he said, Elon is like the first person to be like, he's stupid. It's, it's like, it's a scam. And he literally said it's a scam. So it's dead, in my opinion. Like, that's too much of a shot across the bow. But you don't think that... You know, I think because because he's such a troll, right? Because he's done so much stuff via Twitter and, and other public, you know, platforms. I, I I don't think people are taking him as seriously as they they used to, and so I I worry that. I don't know. I, I just I I feel like it's it's not it's not dead. I feel like there is a lot of I mean, policy work going on that is you know continuing to try to at least leverage the ESG narrative as a tool in order to continue to suppress people financially. I think it's just a means to an end for, for the average person, but I, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like it's, I, I, it's still an effective heartstring to tug. So I disagree with you, Brandon, and I kind of pseudo agree with you P I think this is when you see someone like Elon come out and say like, yo, ESG is fucking bullshit. I've literally scammed it mid billions of dollars off of this bullshit fucking thing you guys have created the esg advocates are not going to be like oh 
this guy who literally spends his entire life thinking about energy use and its place in the future of civilization thinks that this is bad. It's, hey, this guy is saying something I don't agree with that doesn't align with my beliefs, so therefore he's a troll. And I think the narratives in that echo chamber of climate change is a real, like, dude, they didn't take off that fucking shot clock in New York City. There's still the timer in New York City where it's like, once we reach this point, like climate change is irreversible. Like, wait, 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 hold on. I don't think anybody would claim that. Actually, I'm sure people would. But Elon Musk is not like laser focused on improving the environment. He's laser focused on like improving and growing his his bags, which is totally fine. Like that's not a moral judgment on my part. But I think that when you say like people are calling him a troll just because he's saying things that they disagree with, I don't think that's true. I think people are calling him a troll for very for very good reason. And I I mean as a as someone who trolls occasionally often I, I respect it but like you know him supporting dogecoin i mean like half the shit he says is just designed to be extremely inflammatory and i think that's why people call him a troll i think he has done a remarkable job of buying a company that already existed tesla and building it to a much larger enterprise and then effectively arbitraging the societal narratives around esg and basically being able to, you know, kind of twist those around to support his own business. He's done a very, very good job of that. I don't doubt that. But again, I think you're thinking of it too highbrow. Like we read between these lines, but the average person who fucking buys a Tesla here in Los Angeles is not thinking like, oh, Elon Musk is a troll. Where's the electric energy coming from my electricity? It's, well, I drive an electric car. So like I'm I'm doing my part for the no, environment. Exactly. Thank you, Elon Musk, for like creating this opportunity for me. Like people still look at Elon like that. Like they genuinely mm, okay. do look at him like that. And it just isn't in our echo chamber. And the point I'm trying to okay. make is there is an echo chamber that very much still exists, that very much continues to pound the drum of ESG is very important, that climate change is going to destroy the world. And if we don't do something drastic, like stop drilling for oil and stop using gas, then we're all going to die. And that narrative, while we don't come across it as much anymore, it exists. And I think we're naive to just discredit it and say like, oh no, this is this doesn't exist anymore. There's still a subset of the population that pounds that drum in the same way that we are a subset of the population that pounds the drum for financial freedom. I bet in three years, no one will talk about ESG anymore. Ooh, I love stats. that. Ooh, I love that. that is How a, many stats are we putting down? Tweet stamp that or, shit. Or I, I'm a big fan of a water bet. What? A water uh, bet. What does it mean? The loser gets dunked on with water. Oh, okay. I mean, that can be fun too. But so my bet, whoever wants to take it is that on August 1st, 2025, G will no longer be talked about as like, you know, it's not going to be an active investing model. It's not going to be any sort of government mandate or anything. It's, it's going to be gone. Flash in the pan. Like I kind of agree with that, but just because I, I think it could be fun. Let's, let's take this water bet. Loser gets right. dunked on with water and records it on camera. Filmed and then released on yep. Bitcoin magazine, yep. YouTube. Yep. All right. I will take the other side that in. All right. So Q, you have, it's going to be, it's going to happen. People, it will still be a dominant part of the political. No, I just think it will exist still. It will still be an investment. Uh, no, 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 he said it will not exist. Come on. What does that even mean? That's like saying like 
fucking you know dude ESG is Nazism so new, doesn't exist anymore ESG is so new like it wasn't around five years ago wait wait hold on hold on hold on wait, wait. I want to I want to I want to lock in the terms of this agreement Fine. I think it's fair to say that it that what seventy five percent of the political support for ESG that exists today will have vanished by the day that you just specified. You guys agree to those terms? I want to see this happen. I want to see one of you get dunked with ice water. Yeah. How about how about this? BlackRock being like the most famous, you know, ESG mandated fund. BlackRock will not have an ESG mandate by August 1st, 2023. I love it. 2023 or 2025? I'm oh, sorry, 2025. Stand behind your words, Keith. No, because I think BlackRock can change, but I think the narrative around ESG as a whole Coward. will not. That like that's the line I personally will draw. Fuck it, I'll take the other side. You want to call it BlackRock? Right. We call it the BlackRock. Fire. There we go. All right, you heard it here first. I'll, I'll get dunked. He's gonna get water. dunked with water. <laughs> All right, it's happening. All right. Uh, Literally, the we'll second BlackRock closes their ESG fund, I can see it now. Brandon's gonna be like, "Yo." Q lost the bet. Time to dunk yourself in water, and I will pull a fucking Marshall Erickson. Shout out to my uh, How I Met Your Mother fans, and you got it. You got to let it finish. You got to get to that date. No, no, we're good. We got. We got the date. We got the time. It's gonna be a thing. Huh. All right. So we've got about eight minutes left, Brandon. I know you're a busy man. You gotta. You gotta run. What have we not talked about as it relates to Bitcoin that you've been thinking a lot about lately or what do you want to, what do you want to use this opportunity to discuss? Or I got a better question. If you don't have something to discuss, what's yours? My question is what, what do you think of when you think of when you hear Amsterdam? Is there, is this like a trick question? Yes. Yeah. It's a trick question. Okay. When I think of Amsterdam, I think of Vincent van Gogh. There you uh, go. Bam. Ask and answer. Go back to my question. So I would say, you know, the thing that probably is, is you know, especially considering it's Independence Day for Bitcoin. Did we did we already talk about, by the way, the $1 for uh, Peter McCormick? Yeah, we yes, did. But, 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 but I would love to hear your thoughts on that as well, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that to tie all of that together, I mean, we're in a moment where the attacks on Bitcoin will ramp up the the like we have yet to exist in an era where there is hostility towards blockchains, where, where blockchains exist in adverse environments. And because of that, all of these centralized entities, all of these entities that require, you know, just one or two people to succeed are going to go through their hardest test alongside Bitcoin. But the difference between Bitcoin and all of them is that Bitcoin is actually decentralized. There is no stopping Bitcoin. And the rest of the rest of them will collapse. Like the rest of them will get grinded to a halt and and made illegal and their founders thrown in jail. And, you know, it's going to get ugly. And I just think that, you know, Craig Wright was such a simple, easy attack on Bitcoin. We should have been able to, to ward him off pretty easily. And I think we did to a large extent. But I think the damage that he caused the amount of time that he sucked for so many of our core devs for, you know, people in, in areas of the world where free speech isn't as protected like the UK, you know, he became a real danger and a real liability. And so I just want us all to kind of be conscious of the fact that the attacks will ramp up, 
the the enemies the the villains will get more powerful and more the stakes will get raised and so because of that you know we just need to make sure that we're fighting for the core tenets of bitcoin that keep it unstoppable and that is its decentralization that is its proof of work you know capacity that is its simplicity on the main chain you know not creating bugs or loopholes or, or things that could be exploited. And that's, you know, slaying your heroes. And, you know, let's just keep, you know, keep chugging along. I think we're doing a really good job as a community of protecting those sort of, you know, key exploitable points, those single points of failure that try to emerge. And, you know, I am, you know, I just feel like the luckiest guy in the world that we get to work on the coolest project that has ever been invented by humanity, which is our attempt to, you know, create a value system across all humans. It's beautiful. And specifically, the project you're talking about is Litecoin, right? <laughs> the silver <laughs> to Bitcoin, no. Fuck Litecoin. <laughs> I'm talking about the was a good callback. The good old <laughs> Brandon, obviously it's Bitcoin. Who is a speaker you are excited to have at Bitcoin Amsterdam? Seeing as you are the oracle of speakers. Hmm. Should I drop some alpha on this? Ooh, Fuck yes. Ooh, can get we get it. can we get a drop? Can we drop yeah. live on air someone new, a new speaker? Yeah, I think that this would be not frowned upon, but let me let me hedge it by saying that we're still, you know, rounding out the details of this person. But it seems as though we are confirmed to have Stella Morris and Gabe Shipton speak okay. at the conference. Hopefully reading a letter or maybe a recorded conversation with Julian Assange. So, you know, Stella is Julian's wife. Gabe is his brother-in-law. They've been working really hard to, you know, hashtag free Assange. And, you know, he, he will be seen by history as one of those freedom fighters. And, you know, you got you to gotta support the freedom fighters where they are. And regardless of if you disagree with some of the stuff that they've done, you know, it's about protecting basic freedoms. That, so, that part right there, what Brandon just said, it's not about agreeing with the people you align with. If you believe in real freedom, you believe it even for the people who do things that you don't agree with. That is what real freedom is because otherwise you're a piece of shit. 100%. I don't make the rules. I just tell you what the rules are. <laughs> I love it. All right, my friends. We're just about at the end of our show. Brandon, I want to thank you again for jumping in last minute. This was a rock solid conversation. Super pumped for, for Bitcoin Amsterdam. And want to remind everyone that you can use code BMLIVE to get 10% off everything in the store, including, correct me if I'm wrong, your BA tickets. Fantastic. Check it out. Also check out the the censorship-resistant issue of Bitcoin Magazine, which in my humble opinion is the best edition we have produced so far. Fantastic journalism in it. It really is bleeding-edge Bitcoin journalism by some of the best in the space. Follow us. Follow Brandon on Twitter. Follow Bitcoin Magazine. And we will see you here tomorrow. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today.
If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Thank <laughs> you.